Welcome to you all, and uh, good evening, and uh, welcome to this evening's Ralph Miliband uh, lecture in the series on the future of capitalism, and sponsored by a new LSE initiative, a new journal called Global Policy. I'll just say something briefly about global policy before introducing our guest, who of course needs little introduction from me. Global Policy is a major new LSE initiative, a new journal focused on the major global issues of our time, bringing together academics and practitioners. Joe Stiglitz is on the advisory board of Global Policy, and we thank him very much. If you're interested in knowing more about this new LSE journal, take a look at one word, globalpolicyjournal.com, and be wowed. And uh, here's the first issue, which I present to Joe now. That was the warm-up business. Now for the main uh, story. Joe is, of course, and well-known as a Nobel Prize-winning economist. He won the Nobel Prize in 2001. Um, he has made fundamental contributions to many, if not most, if not all, the subfields of economics. He has taught at many universities across the world, including, I'll just mention, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, and Oxford. Since 2001, he's taught at Columbia, where he's the university professor and chair of the Committee on Global Thought. He's also, of course, held a number of very influential positions, and what makes him so unique is his movement between academia and practical engagement. He served as President Clinton's chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors from 1995 to 97. At the World Bank, of course, uh, served as vice president and chief economist from 97 to 2000. Shortly after, in 2001, he founded the IPD, the Initiative for Policy Dialogue, a think tank on international development based at Columbia. And in 2009, I'm jumping for time, he was appointed by the President of the United Nations General Assembly as the chair of the Commission of Experts on the Reform of the International Financial and Monetary System. He is, of course, a world-renowned author. His book, Globalization and Its Discontents, has been translated into 35 languages and has sold more than a million copies. Other well-known books to most of you include The Roaring Nineties, Making Globalization Work, you might want to revise the title now, Three Million Dollar War, The True Cost of the Iraq Conflict. Today's lecture celebrates the launch. It's an extraordinary thing. This man is unbelievably prolific. The launch of another book, Freefall, which is here. And it's called Free Fall, Free Markets, and the Sinking of the Global Economy. Joe Stiglitz is going to speak on this theme of his new book for about 40 minutes. Then we have roaming mics, and I'll take questions from you all. And then the book is available uh, uh, for sale right after this event, where Joe will sit and sign these copies of this book in the dress circle and the bar area of the Peacock Theatre. So let me uh, uh, and ask you again to welcome Joe here again this evening. He's been to the LSE before. But the fact that you all clap before he says a word says something about this man's contribution to public life, intellectual development, and critical economic thought. So we welcome you greatly. Well, thank you very much for that uh, introduction. Uh, the the last uh, few few years have been uh, last couple of years have been a wonderful period for for economists. As you most of you may know, uh, economics is called the dismal science, uh, and uh, economists have had a field day uh, because things have really been uh, very dismal, uh, and uh, unfortunately, they're likely to remain that way for for uh, some time. Um, Economists, uh, like good doctors, uh, like uh, a very sick patient. Uh, the sicker the patient, the better, because it gives us insight into uh, pathology. When things don't work, gives you insight into the way things should work. And uh, the economy right now is, in many ways, uh, in, remains in, in sick uh, condition. It's particularly, uh, I mean, uh, welcome this opportunity to talk uh, at LSE because um, one of the important uh, consequences of this crisis is to make us rethink our ideas about economics, uh, about how economies work. And one of the points I'm going to try to uh, argue a little bit later is that, in fact, uh, the um, 
failure of the economics profession was an important uh, plays an important role in understanding uh, the current crisis. Uh, before going into uh, a discussion of the causes and and uh, some of the consequences and what to do about the current crisis. I want to spend a few minutes uh, just reviewing how bad the situation is. Uh, take a little bit of an American-centric approach. Uh, very natural to begin with the United States because this uh, is a crisis that has a made in USA label on it. Uh, we, we exported uh, the crisis around the world. Uh, we, we actually exported a, a, a lot of our toxic mortgages and uh, to Europe, and we, we uh, send a big thank you note for buying uh, all of our to so many of our toxic mortgages. About 40% of them were bought uh, in Europe. Um, we, uh, in many parts of the world, we exported our, our deregulatory philosophy, but uh, I think uh, here in England, you know, you, you came about that idea on your own. Um, and some people think you may have actually had some uh, influence back on us. But uh, in any case, uh, uh, this has now become uh, a global crisis. Um, as I say, let, let me just spend a minute talking about how bad things are and why uh, I'm not very optimistic that it will be over very quickly. Uh, it, it's natural to begin with the labor market because even though uh, growth has resumed the last uh, two quarters, there has been some growth. Uh, unemployment remains very high. Um, the official statistics are just now under 10% unemployment, but uh, if you look at a broader measure, which include, includes discouraged workers, uh, if you're not looking for a job because you can't find a job and you've looked for it for more than, you know, for months and you can't find one, you're not called unemployed in the United States or in most other countries. But if you look at a broader measure of people who uh, want a full-time job and can't get it. One out of five Americans now who want a full-time job can't get one, um, which is an amazing uh, statistic. If you look under specific uh, demographic groups, uh, the unemployment, even the official unemployment rate has gotten uh, very high. Uh, among working age males as a whole, the official unemployment rate, not the unofficial one that, as I said, is much larger than that. The official unemployment rate is now close to 20 percent for uh, uh, males uh, of working age. For uh, Afro-American youth in the United States, the unemployment, the official unemployment rate is close to one out of two. So um, uh, when you uh, look at the labor market, uh, it is in a disaster. We are now beginning to experience something that, that happened in Europe uh, in the 80s, a phenomenon that goes by the name of hysteresis, that uh, we are having increasing numbers of long-term unemployed. And the problem with long-term unemployed is that the longer you're unemployed, you use up your savings and you lose your job skills. And uh, the likelihood, therefore, that you will not get another job or not get a good job increases the longer you're unemployed. And right now, uh, more than four out of 10 Americans who are unemployed have been unemployed for six months or more. So uh, again, it, it, it's really a, a sign of, of, of a very sick labor market, particularly unusual in the United States, which has been characterized by very fast turnover of labor uh, of the unemployed. Uh, the housing market is also in uh, a disastrous uh, situation. Uh, it was in housing that the problems began, uh, but the, um, they're actually getting worse, not better. We expect in 2010, between two and a half and three and a half million Americans will lose their homes. And with that, many of them will lose their entire life savings. That's more than in 2009, where it was about two million, and in 2008, when it was almost two million. So we have now a growing problem of, of uh, uh, a social problem as well as, uh, as an economic problem. Uh, and just as a, a digression, it, it shows uh, an aspect of the dysfunctional nature of our markets right now, because uh, at the same time that we have 
large numbers of vacant homes, we also have large numbers of homeless. Uh, standard market economics is that demand is supposed to equal supply, and uh, yet we have the situation of a mixture of homelessness and and uh, uh, unemployed uh, and and vacant homes. An important interaction between uh, this problem of unemployment and the labor market uh, is that there's about to be, at least some people worry there's about to be, a major change in our labor market. One of the characteristics that has defined America's labor market is it's a national labor market with a high degree of mobility. But that mobility requires people moving, from moving from the West Coast to East Coast, all, all over the country. But when they move, they sell their home and buy another home. But they can't do that anymore because right now, more than one out of four Americans who have a mortgage owe more on their house than the value of their home. Their equity is negative. And uh, uh, even those who have positive equity have uh, that's diminished because house prices have come down almost a third uh, from the peak. Uh, the implication of this is, of course, not only is the labor market going to be having more problems, but it's almost inevitable that the problem of uh, uh, the, the, the problem of uh, foreclosures is going to continue. The financial system right now is uh, seems to be in repair. But it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is lending. In fact, credit is being constrained. Um, and again, there's a interplay between the real estate market and what is going on. Small businesses, which uh, are really the source of job creation, uh, are finding it increasingly difficult to get loans because much of their lending is what is called collateral-based loans, which means they use their real estate as collateral, but with, collateral, with real estate prices coming down, uh, their access to loans is is being diminished. And in that sense, it, it, these problems seem to be uh, increasing, uh, not diminishing. But meanwhile, uh, the financial markets are facing some very big bumps uh, in the road. Uh, commercial real estate, not gotten a lot of attention, is almost in the same situation that, or in some people think in a worse situation than the residential mortgage market. About a half trillion dollars of, more, of, of commercial real estates are coming due each year in the next five years. And uh, many of them are also underwater. That is to say, the value of the property is less than the loan. Uh, the first of uh, these problems uh, manifested itself about two weeks ago with one of the largest bankruptcies uh, that we faced, uh, and that's likely to uh, continue. Uh, it is true that the banks are reporting profits, uh, but as I jokingly say, if, uh, if you could borrow from the Fed at a zero interest rate billions of dollars, uh, you too could make billions of dollars. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to take money from the Fed and uh, buy a zero interest rate and buy, say, uh, a government T-bill earning a lot higher. So it's not genius that is generating uh, the profits. Um, very little of the profits are coming actually from lending. Uh, they're from other areas uh, of activity, speculating and this kind of arbitrage uh, of borrowing low from the government close to zero interest rate and, and lending. So um, the prospects of, the, of a sound recovery uh, of the banking system, uh, that the banks will return soon to doing what they're supposed to do, lending, is, is fairly bleak. So this is uh, uh, what I've tried to do is, is to share with you uh, some of the reasons why uh, I am uh, uh, fulfilling my role as a dismal economist in, in uh, saying things are pretty bleak. Let me go on to talk about how we got into this current mess. Uh, there's a lot of debate about the causes uh, uh, and, and, and the cures. Um, I'll give you my view that, uh, and I think I, I try to argue this, and I think uh, I think I do it persuasively. Um, that at the core of the problem is uh, the financial sector. Uh, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. Uh, it failed. 
a financial sector is a means to an end, not an end in itself. And what it's supposed to do is actually fairly simple. Allocate capital, uh, manage risk, uh, to uh, run the payments mechanism, and to do it at all low transaction costs. Uh, it misallocated capital. It created risk. It didn't, man it, it didn't manage the risk. Uh, it uh, put in jeopardy the, the, the payments mechanism. And it did this all at enormous financial co transaction cost. Forty percent of all corporate profits in the United States uh, were in the financial sector. Uh, and uh, 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 in that sense, uh, we confused. Uh, uh, we thought that was a great thing. Uh, in fact, it was a sign of, uh, I would say, of a sick economy, when something that is a means to an end garners so much of the profits of the economy, it's a sign that something was wrong. Um, and uh, uh, a lot of things were wrong. One of the issues that I try to address in my book is, I, I call it peeling back the onion, uh, you have to ask, when you see a failure of this magnitude, what was the reason? Uh, you know, that's not the way market economies are supposed to, to operate. Most of you probably teach, uh, 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 most of you have taken economics courses where you talk about the efficiency of markets and how they do all these wonders, uh, and uh, they're not supposed to uh, fail in this way. And so you have to ask, why did they fail so badly? Well. Uh, the obvious answer is flawed incentives. Uh, the one thing economists agree on is that incentives matter, and uh, the incentives in the financial system were perverse. They had incentives to engage in excessive risk-taking, uh, incentives to engage in short-sighted behavior, and they did it. In fact, I used to you know, be a little bit worried before the crisis because I looked at the incentive structures that those in the financial sector uh, had, and they told me that there ought to be a problem. And when there was no problem, I started getting worried. Does it mean that our theories of incentives are wrong, incentives don't matter? And so the good news for economists like me is that the crisis occurred. Um, it allows us to continue teaching that incentives do matter. And if you have really bad incentives, you get bad behavior. Um, but that isn't, uh, again, a complete story because you have to ask the question, why did the financial sector have such perverse incentives? Aren't you taught that, in fact, capitalism is supposed to figure out what a good incentive is? In fact, that was supposed to be one of the big advantages of a market economy. It knows how to design incentive systems that work. And yet, in this case, it didn't seem to work. Well, to get the answer to that, you'll have to buy the book. Because uh, uh, this can go on, and, and he's told me I only have a, a few minutes to go through a, a lot of material. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, now, uh, I put the, the, the banks, the financial system, at the core of the problem. But obviously, regulators uh, played a role. Um, and this, uh, if it makes you feel good, it's, uh, regulators in many countries, not just the UK. Um, the the uh, regulators failed, um, but in a way, they were the second line of defense. The first line of defense is the banks were supposed to do the right thing. There were two reasons for the failures of the regulators. One of them is uh, that, at least in the United States and in many other countries, uh, politics stripped away the regulations. There was a, a, a period of about 40 years after the, the Great Depression when we learned the lessons of that Great Depression. And one of the things we learned is that we needed regulation. We passed the United States, Glass-Steagall, other bank regulation. Regulators took seriously the job of regulation. And it is remarkable that there was a, a period of, uh, of 40 years in which there were almost no uh, financial crises, either in the advanced industrial countries or even in, uh, in the United States, in Europe, or uh, uh, around the world. Um, evidently, regulation did work. Uh, before that, 
there had been frequent financial crises. After that, beginning in 1980, there have been frequent financial crises, over 120 in the last 30 years. So there's nothing really special about this crisis except that it's bigger and uh, it's here in the advanced industrial countries rather than in the developing countries. Uh, so that's the distinctive feature of this. But we, you know, the the financial system, the banks have repeatedly done a bad job of allocating credit. We've repeatedly bailed them out. Uh, th this is something that uh, I saw over and over again uh, as chief economist of the World Bank and uh, um, in the in the years uh, after that. Moreover, there was not only political pressure to, appoint, to, to strip away the regulations that had protected us for so long, but also to appoint regulators who don't, didn't believe in regulation. Uh, and uh, uh, we found them. There are lots of people around who don't believe in regulation. Uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is, is uh, the story of what happened under uh, President Reagan. Uh, uh, Paul Volcker had been the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He had done a fantastic job of doing what central bank governors are supposed to do. He brought down the rate of inflation from double-digit levels to a very low levels, and yet Reagan fired him. And you, you would have thought he would have gotten an, an A++, would have gotten a you know, presidential medal, all kinds of awards. But why was he fired by Reagan? Reagan wanted somebody to repeal Glass-Steagall, to strip away regulations. One of the points I try to raise in the book is there's been an awful lot of focus on individuals. You know, understandable. Most of the other books that have been written about the crisis focus on you know the four days of uh, that Lehman's fail uh, failed, or the four days of Bear Stearns, and you know who went to the bathroom when, and what would have happened if they hadn't left the room to go to the bathroom, and how the things would have turned out differently. Um, but. As social scientists, I think we tend to look not at those individual events and those particularities, but at the underlying forces. And if, if Greenspan or Bernanke hadn't been there, there would have been some other free marketeer who would have done the job, maybe better, maybe worse, but the outcome almost surely would have been not too dissimilar to what, to what occurred. I want to spend, though, a, a few minutes on trying to explain uh, one of the factors that contributed to this stripping away the regulations and to this philosophy that regulations weren't needed, and that's the role of the economists, uh, the economics profession. Because I think, uh, I'm sure David will probably agree with me that economists are terrible people, um, that, that uh, <laughs> um, but but economists uh, did provide many of the arguments that uh, undergirded uh, this attempt to strip away regulation and to justify uh, why uh, you don't need regulation and uh, um, uh, uh, why, therefore, you don't have to use the regulatory powers uh, that you have. Um, there were there became fashionable in the economics uh, profession uh, this notion that markets are efficient, markets are self-correcting. Now, one would have said it's obviously uh, a, a flawed idea because, after all, we did have uh, something called the Great Depression, and markets were not self-correcting. Not only did we have the Great Depression uh, all over the world, but there have been episode, uh, repeated episodes of uh, underemployment, unemployment, business cycles. The notion that somehow all of this was a thing of the past was really something that defied logic and defied, uh, defied history. But remarkably, uh, it became uh, a very fashionable doctrine. Uh, and uh, m simplistic models describing how markets with perfect information, that uh, perfect competition, 
that uh, adjusted smoothly became taught in universities uh, all over the world. The irony was, of course, that just as these theories were being developed, there were other theories being developed explaining how when information was imperfect, asymmetric, when uh, bargaining powers were, when, when there was imperfect competition and that in most markets there were important imperfections of competition, the world looked markedly different from the way that it looked with, uh, in these perfect markets. Um, I think the lesson that we should learn from this crisis is that, in fact, the markets are not self-correcting, that they are not by themselves, uh, do not necessarily restore themselves quickly to full employment, uh, that they are not even necessarily efficient, they're not rational, uh, that uh, there, as I say, uh, there were a number of results, just to mention uh, uh, two modestly. Uh, one is uh, the paper I wrote with uh, Bruce Greenwald, where we proved that when their uh, markets are, have even a small degree of imperfections of information, asymmetry of information, uh, uh, imperfect risk markets, uh, the reason uh, that the market is not constrained Pareto efficient, it's not efficient in, in, the, in, in taking into account uh, even the information imperfections, the cost of information and so forth. To put it another way, what, what we showed is that the reason that the invisible hand Adam Smith's invisible hand, which argues that markets lead as if but a, by an invisible hand to uh, efficient outcomes, the reason the visible hand seemed invisible was that it was not there. <laughs> and uh, that the pursuit of self-interest, which is another name for greed on the part of the bankers, did not lead to societal well-being, but led, in fact, to an economic disaster. So I think uh, we should learn from this that, that self-interest uh, does not necessarily lead to the kinds of outcomes that the free marketeers advocated. The intellectual underpinnings of the efficient markets hypothesis, which was the notion that markets efficiently um, disseminate information, had also been already attacked in a paper I wrote uh, 30 years ago with, uh, more than 30 years, with Sandy Grossman. We pointed out that if markets were as efficient as those advocates claimed, nobody would have an incentive to gather information. And if they didn't have an incentive to gather information, the only information would be that would be efficiently disseminated would be worthless information, or at least costless information. And therefore, while it might be efficient, it would not be efficient, it would not be very informative. So that this whole glorification of the markets, uh, the information efficiency, uh, was internally inconsistent. Well, this crisis has shown uh, manifestation after manifestation of the irrationality of markets. And it's just a wonderful catalog of, uh, to put it in, in uh, I guess, a non-euphemistic way, of stupidities by the market. Uh, and let me just m mention a few. Uh, one of them is um, our banks, our mortgage companies, lent to people well beyond their, their ability to pay. And they said, don't worry about it because house prices are going to go up. Well, uh, they believed that house prices would go up and up, even though for most Americans, incomes were actually adjusted for inflation going down. And you don't have to have a PhD to figure out people can't spend more than 100% of their income on housing. Uh, but that was the implication of what they were saying. So it was just inevitable, a matter of time, before this bubble broke. Let me give you an example of the kind of, uh, you might say, cognitive dissonance that people like uh, Greenspan exhibited. He, he advised Americans to go out and take out variable rate mortgages, mortgages where the interest rate, where the payments vary with, with the interest rate. At the same time, he believed in efficient markets. Now, if you believe in efficient markets, 
you know that the only aspect uh, of uh, that you can't save money going in on average using one mortgage form versus another. And yet he told people he believed in efficient markets, but he said you would have saved money if you had gotten a variable rate mortgage. Now, what he should have said is the variable rate mortgages represent a great deal more risk than a fixed rate mortgage. The reason that 10 years ago people would have done better if they had gotten a variable rate mortgage was very simple. Markets are always uh, looking at the past to estimate where the future goes. Interest rates had never been brought down to 1%, which they have been brought down because of the abnormal behavior of Greenspan. So he was the one who destroyed the normal statistical relationships. But when interest rates are at 1%, what is the likely direction where they're going to go? Again, you don't have to PhD to figure out they're probably going to go up. Historically, they had never been so low. And if they went up and if people had borrowed so much, they would get into trouble. So uh, again, he was giving them advice that was inconsistent with his so-called theories, and his theory, what he was saying uh, was actually terrible advice uh, for, uh, the, uh, for, for, for these people. A third example, uh, he, uh, people in the market were creating these new products that had never been created for, before, they were innovative, the reason they were innovative is that they had a really stupid products. People have before had not, not done these things. But then they used past data to predict the probabilities of foreclosure. Now, they said at the same time that they had been very innovative. They had changed the world. Because they had changed the world, they deserved the mega salaries they were getting. And yet, they used past data assuming that they hadn't changed the world. They had changed the world, but for the worst. The probabilities of the foreclosure were all off because they had invented mortgages that were really very bad mortgages. The quality of the product had gone down. And yet, they didn't recognize this. Now, as I say, these are things that you didn't need to have a PhD, you didn't even need to have an MBA to figure this out, and yet uh, uh, they seemed to ignore this. And I think part of the reason was they had an incentives to ignore these things. One more um, example um, referred to before, incentive pay. They, make, they, they talked all the time about incentive pay, and that was the justification of the huge bonuses. And yet, their incentive structures didn't distinguish between the two components that everybody at business school talked about, which was alpha and beta. That is to say, there, you can get higher performance by taking greater risk, or you can get higher performance at any given risk by doing better. But they got the same pay whether they did what, to increase risk is very easy and increase the return. To increase performance at any given risk is very difficult. But their pay structures didn't distinguish between the two, and almost everybody went the easy route of increasing the risk. And again, uh, the outcome is what was predictable and which was predicted. Uh, I could go on, but I think the point is fairly clear that the whole set of doctrines of rational participants, rational markets, really has been fundamentally undermined. And uh, uh, what is required is a real re-examination of some of the underlying postulates that I, I try to, to describe and go into that uh, in one of the chapters uh, in the book. Let me very briefly, how many minutes? Five minutes, okay. Um, uh, going forward, give all the solutions, where, what, what we uh, should do now that we didn't do the right thing. Uh, there are uh, three uh, elements that I'll have time to talk about. The first, uh, in the good news was that, uh, as some people put, uh, we're all Keynesians now. Uh, all the governments realized that they needed to uh, um, increase expenditures to stimulate the economy. But it was very clear, particularly in the United States, that we had too small of a stimulus and it was not well designed. Uh, about a third of it went for tax cuts 
uh, and uh, it was so clear that given the overhang of debt uh, and, and the uncertainties of the labor market, much of that would not be spent. So uh, the, what, is, what we need now is a second round of stimulus. The worry is that in Europe, in the United States, the overhang of debt is such that uh, there are great pressures to reduce uh, the uh, government spending that would that would weaken the economies and worsen the problems. So when I said it was good news that we were all Keynesians, there was a moment in which we were all Keynesians, and and now there is uh, even though those policies worked, the problem is that because they weren't strong enough, unemployment continued, and so too many people look at the result and say, well, they didn't work. Well, they did work. If it hadn't been for that, the unemployment in the United States, instead of being 9.7%, would have been 10.7 or 11%. So uh, trying to explain to uh, most people about the counterfactual, what things would have been, is not easy. Second point, uh, I mentioned before that the number of houses going into default is increasing. Uh, what we we... Uh, President Obama did a little but not enough and the main thing he didn't do was to do anything about the house the mortgages that are underwater that is where they owe more money than the value of them uh, he didn't want to write down any of the mortgages and so the result of that is that the problem of mortgages that are underwater has remained has increased um, some mortgages have been restructured but restructured in ways that leave them even more in debt so uh, the, 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 there needs to be, uh, uh, there's a broad consensus that something has to be done about this. If you don't, the, the, the heavy level of indebtedness is going to continue to press down in the economy. The third thing is regulation, reforming regulation. Uh, the, uh, what we've done, we've done almost nothing so far. Uh, I've talked about a, a, a four-pillar uh, approach, increasing transparency. In fact, in response to the crisis, what did the banks want? Reduce transparency, and U.S. changed the accounting rules to make them less transparent so we know now less about the true state of the banks than we did uh, 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 a year ago. Secondly, doing something about incentives, both at the individual level, I talked about that, but also at the organizational level. Banks that are too big to fail are too big to be. And uh, they have perverse incentives. If they, uh, if they gamble and win, they take away the profits. They gamble and lose, uh, the taxpayer picks up uh, the tab. But it's not just a problem of too big to fail banks. It's too intertwined to fail banks. It's banks that are too correlated to fail. There's a whole set of problems that are related uh, to this. Um, the third thing is we are, are structural reforms. Uh, the, system is, is, is deep with problems of conflicts of interest. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the th problems in the United States is uh, banks, depository institutions, uh, do proprietary trading on their own accounts and on the accounts of, of, of others. And the conflicts of interest are uh, a major uh, source of problems. So there needs to be structural reforms. Uh, not necessarily reinstating the Glass-Steagall, but uh, uh, reforms along those lines. And finally, there needs to be uh, restrictions on uh, excessive risk-taking, and especially dealing with the over-the-counter uh, derivatives. Um, I mean, that one piece with one company, AIG, cost American taxpayers $180 billion. And we, these numbers are so large that we sometimes forget about what that means. If you ask what we could have done with $180 billion, and to put it in perspective, all the foreign aid from all the advanced industrial countries to all the poorer countries in the world amounts to about uh, $90 billion a year. Uh, if we talk about all the aid that the U.S. gives to, 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 to Africa, for what we gave to AIG, we could have financed our, program, uh, our aid programs to Africa for more than a quarter century. So, you know, 
these are the magnitudes of the numbers that went to one company and just disappeared down the drain. We have nothing to show for it. Well, uh, one of the big issues, uh, and this relates to issues that are being discussed uh, uh, in global, uh, uh, global policy, are uh, everybody says there's a need for global coordination. I agree, but part of the problem right now is that global coordination is very difficult to achieve. Everybody wants to uh, figure out a rule that will advantage their banks relative to other people's. The banks are loving this discussion of global coordination because they know that while this discussion goes on, nothing will happen. Twelve years ago, in the time of the last global crisis, the global financial crisis of 97-98, there was a lot of highfalutin discussions of reforming the global financial architecture. And the people pushing this, I think, knew that if they elevated the discussion to a high enough level, nothing would happen. So all that happened was you created something called the Financial Stability Forum, which had, was headed by people who believed in the deregulation philosophy and the liberalization philosophy that had caused the previous crisis and caused this crisis. And so what was the international reform at the G20, the major reform, to change the name of this Financial Stability Forum to Financial Stability Board? You subtract your head, and, and they add a few more countries to, to it, but kept the same person at the head. Now you ask, is it likely that this is going to lead to a major reform in the global financial system? Maybe, and they are beginning to do a little bit, uh, but I wouldn't count on it. So the view that I finally have come to is uh, each country has a responsibility to its citizens and to its economy that it has to pass a set of regulatory reforms to protect its economy and its citizens against uh, what we know is uh, a potential of a disaster. In the United States, looking at what's happened to our financial system, the way we manage the bailouts, we know our financial system is in worse shape now than it was three years ago. What happened is we gave money to the big banks that are the casino capitalism and we let 140 banks go bankrupt in 2009 alone. And many of these smaller banks are banks that are actually involved in lending to real enterprises. The venture capital firms today have trouble getting capital. The firms that are the banks that are actually lending to enterprises are having trouble, uh, uh, are, are in difficult shape. So. It seems to, me, as I say, mean, it seems to me that each country, within its own political context, uh, its own specific context, needs to adopt a set of a regulatory framework, and then after that, we can begin a discussion of how to reconcile these to avoid the problems of regulatory arbitrage. But if we don't, uh, time is ticking, and uh, the impetus of reform will weaken, uh, and the result of that will will be we will wind up. Uh, in the same mess that we are, uh, that we, we we got ourselves in uh, in the beginning, uh, in 2007, 2008. So let me. Don't have another Now, we've got uh, four mic uh, mics. Uh, uh, where are you at the top? The light is hard to see you guys. One there and uh, one over there. Okay, I, we're going to take questions in clusters of five so we can get several voices out here and give Joe uh, an opportunity to reflect on what you say. Please keep your questions very short and tight. No statements. A question is something that can, in principle, be answered with a yes or no. <laughs> Absolutely no statements or you'll be cut off. Yes, let's take someone in the corner. Lady in the corner at the top. Say who, yeah, say who you are. Thanks very much. Um, my question to Professor Stiglitz is that um, what sort of regulatory structure would you like to put in place, seeing that most politicians are interested in regulating just one thing, bankers, salaries, and bonus structures? 
Okay, and let's take a question down here. Where's the mics? Down here. Let's take this gentleman here with his hand up. You've all got your hands up, so I'll just take you. Yeah, go for it. My name is Peter Hesseldale. Uh, you uh, recently wrote a report for President Sarkozy uh, talking about uh, uh, introducing other values than pure economics, and I get a sense that you perhaps see this as a way of, uh, of a new kind of growth. How would you promote this kind of growth, and do you see it as a way forward out of this mess? Yep. Uh, Giles Keating, alumnus of LSE. Uh, Professor Stiglitz, some people would say that it wasn't so much a regulatory failure, it was a monetary policy failure. The Fed funds rate was far too low, way below what the uh, Taylor rule would say, uh, and the Fed refused to take account of asset prices in setting it. Isn't that where we should be focused more than the regulatory side? And if you could just bring the mic to the front here, this lady in the front, and then we'll come back up to the top. Hi, thank you very much. I was just wondering, um, you've talked obviously a lot about the US situation, but I was wondering in terms of developing economy, economies, how long it would take them to get out of this mess? And one more question at the top. Keep going. Yeah, that gentleman. Thank you for the short uh, questions. I was curious if you could speak to the inherent systemic volatility arising from like the Nixon shock and the actual liquidity when the gold standard was brought down. Can you just repeat it again? We missed it down here. I was curious if you could talk about the inherent financial volatility uh, that resulted from the end of the gold standard and the Nixon shock and how that impacts what we're seeing today. Okay, five excellent short questions. We'll come back to you for another round of five if, if Joe can be brief. But let me just add, a, two, can I add just one thought of my own and I'll try and be as brief as all of you. Uh, you said nothing uh, about, the, about global imbalances, especially the relationship between the US and China, the savings glut in Asia and so on. And I wonder how you weigh this. In relation to that, I wonder whether you think the global financial crisis will enhance the rise of Asia and its important influence now in the world economy. And you subtitle the book, the sort of, in a sense, The Sinking of the Global Economy, but I wonder whether it's the global economy that's sunk or whether really in the end of the day what has sunk is the Anglo-American model of capitalism. <laughs> Uh, the way you ask the question, I think, gives the answer. Uh, <laughs> but uh, le let me begin, actually, uh, with, uh, their, their, uh, with the, the, the question about uh, uh, the low interest rate and the extent to which that uh, is to blame. Um, we've had periods in which we've had low interest rates without bubbles. Uh, when we had good regulation uh, in the years after World War II. So uh, low interest rates do not necessarily lead to bubbles. One way I uh, think about it is the following. Uh, if a firm came to you and said, um, the reason I lost so much money that I was so, you know, I, I, I did such a bad job is my workers decided that they were willing to work at a low wage. And that was the reason my profits were low and I messed up. What would you say to the firm? You would say, what? You're complaining about low, low wages? Well, what's the major input to banks? Financial system. It's capital. And they're complaining today. They're blaming the Fed because it gave them capital at too low a price. That kind of argument is itself a reason why we should be worried about the financial system. <laughs> they... Um, if they had done their job, and they didn't, if they had done their job, taken that low-cost capital, allocated it well to, produce, to create factories, to create, uh, go into research, we would be having a boom now all over the world. Um, the money could have been channeled to, to help developing countries, that new, you know, high-return uh, investments in, in developing countries. So the fundamental problem was that they allowed the banks to misallocate the capital, to channel it, didn't see that a bubble was forming. In fact, because they believed that there were no such things as bubbles. So it was the failure of the Fed, but in its role as a regulatory authority, not in its role of failing to follow uh, the Taylor rule. Now, uh, there are some people, uh, Martin Wolf and others, who blame the problem on uh, 
China for saving too much. Uh, they use the word uh, global imbalances. Again, I view it's the same, same kind of an argument. Uh, we are complaining about access to too low cost of capital is the reason our system failed. Again, it seems to me a very peculiar uh, argument. Uh, and right now, the way the G20 is responding is equally peculiar because what they're telling the agreement that was made in Pittsburgh is for uh, uh, the U.S. to save more. I think that's a good thing going from a zero savings rate uh, to a more uh, uh, reasonable savings rate is a move in the right direction. But the other part of it is telling uh, China that it should consume more, that it should start imitating America's profligate lifestyle. Our planet cannot survive if we do that. Uh, so the problem isn't excess savings. The problem is that the savings are not being channeled to the huge needs that the world has. Uh, not only problems of global poverty, but climate change, re retrofitting the global economy for the needs to, to, to for a, a green uh, economy. Um, again, the financial sector is failing, failing to do its, uh, its key role in intermediation of bringing these funds available to the savers, to the investors where our global society needs it. Now, in some cases, it's not just the failure of the financial markets. Failure to reach an agreement at Copenhagen means that the price of carbon is not what it should be, and that means the price system is failing uh, to do uh, what it should do. The, uh, when we ask, uh, though, come to try to understand uh, the reason for the, well, the two other comments about global imbalances. The first is, to really blame the global imbalances uh, for the low interest rates is to say that the Fed has no control over the interest rates. Uh, it may not have perfect control, but it's still the case that the Fed and central bankers in Europe have some control. So even if there was an overall in the long term, it may have an effect. It was no, no excuse for, for the short term, uh, what happened in the short term. The other question is we have to ask the question, why is there so much savings in uh, the uh, uh, developing world? And there are several reasons for it, but one of the reasons actually goes back to uh, the mismanagement of the East Asia crisis in 97-98, where uh, I mentioned, uh, you know, uh, in, in that crisis, uh, the U.S. Treasury, the IMF, imposed contractionary fiscal policies, high interest rates, uh, took away their economic sovereignty, told them not to bail out the banks, the, everything the opposite of what U.S. and Europe have done in this crisis. Uh, the result of that is that they said, I mean, I talked to the pri prime minister of one of these countries, he said, we were in the class of 97. We learned what happened if you don't have enough reserves. Uh, you lose your economic sovereignty. And uh, he said, going on, never again will we allow this. And so he, like many of the other countries in Asia, started building up huge reserves in the trillions of dollars. Now, that's increased their fiscal uh, uh, security, their financial security. But when you save, those of you who remember your economic one course, uh, it's called the paradox of thrift. Uh, as each of them builds, doesn't spend the money, that leads to a, la a lack of global aggregate demand. In a world of globalization, what matters is global aggregate demand. And after the crisis, because we haven't fixed this problem, we've actually made it worse, uh, this problem is likely to persist. Those, well, I say we made it worse because those countries that have done the best are those countries that have the biggest reserves. They've been able to manage their way through the crisis better. And that brings me to the second set of questions about Asia, uh, where, oh, yeah, very good. Short, okay. Uh, the the, the uh, uh, basic, you know, uh, China, many of the developing countries are actually uh, recovering very quickly. In fact, uh, they managed to avoid uh, the recession. Partly because, you know, China uh, was the best student of Keynesian economics. Uh, they, they studied uh, the textbooks and, and followed the dictates. They, they, and they had a very strong stimulus, much larger 
relative to the size of the economy than the United States. And they did it in a very well, they designed it well. Uh, a largest part of it went into infrastructure for uh, uh, a national railroad system that would uh, be energy efficient, fast, and change the economic geography um, of, uh, uh, of, of the country. Um, let me just answer uh, uh, two questions about the regulatory system. Um, what needs to be done uh, besides the bonus structure? In the UK, there's a lot of focus on the bonus structure. Uh, I talk about, talked about that a little, uh, a little bit. Uh, the Volcker rule that the, the proposal is being done in the United States about limiting proprietary trading, uh, limiting um, some of the conflicts of interest, limiting some of the size, uh, I think are absolutely uh, essential. Um, but I think that a lot more needs to be done. Uh, I, I mentioned regulating the over-the-counter credit default swaps, um, uh, uh, excessive leverage. Uh, there is actually, I think, a very broad agenda that I, I try to describe uh, in my book. Uh, finally, let me just say something very briefly about um, um, uh, the uh, Sarkozy Commission uh, and the emphasis that it puts on uh, ex uh, uh, on other uh, on the on the, crit the critic criticism that it raises about the way we measure GDP. And the crisis really brought out some of the problems the way we measure GDP. Uh, the profits I refer to: forty percent of all corporate profits. Uh, in the United States that were in the uh, financial sector. We now know those were all a phantasm. They didn't really exist. And the losses in profit, losses in 2008 and 9 more than undid all the profits in 2003, 4, 5, 6, and 7. So th they, those were all uh, not real profits. Really important for those of you who are students who do econometric studies where you look at the relationship between performance and various characteristics of the economy, if your measure of performance is badly flawed, you're going to make very bad inferences about uh, uh, what uh, the consequences are. I do want to make, I, I, I'm being told to be very brief, uh, in the last chapter of the book I, I, I try to talk about uh, what are some of the implications of, the, of this commission, Sarkozy Commission, uh, for thinking about going forward and, and, and uh, thinking about the implications of this crisis um, for redesigning our uh, economic and financial system. Thank you. We are, we are tied for time, but I would like to take a couple more questions. We're tied for time because Joe wants to sign some books afterwards, and then he has to be somewhere tight after that. I can't tell you where it is. We've got a 10 on the front of it. Uh, <laughs> and so we're, we're operating on a strict timetable here. So let's, where, where is the, where's the mic? Let's take the gentleman with, the blue, with his hand up with the blue shirt. And then, yes, the, the uh, guy at the back. Second, second, yeah? So the question here. No, back there. Right back there, the guy with the blue shirt. Where's the mic? Sorry, we're having a confusing time here. The guy at the back with the hand up. Yeah, and then we'll take the question at the top up there. Where were you? Yeah, the back, top, 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 yeah. top, top. Right in the corner. But the question here first, please. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, it might be a very provocative uh, question. Um, how can the politicians like solve the problem or like change the regulation and stuff like that if the banks has bought the government? Okay, a clear question. <laughs> Up there at the top, yeah, guy at the top. Can you say some more about the Sarkozy Commission, please? <laughs> okay, yes, the lady here at the front with the blue pullover. Can you pass the mic to her? Very good. Thank you. A question about systemic risk um, in financial markets. Um, when and whether and how could global cooperation contribute to the regulation of systemic risk? Or whether um, systemic risk is better reduced by reducing the financial interdependence between countries? Okay, we're racing for time, yes. Short uh, question. With the crisis in the Eurozone, isn't there a danger of the Greek contagion being spread to Spain and Portugal with contractionary economic policies being imposed from Brussels? And the lady in front of you. Uh, 
Um, given the damage to public finances from the financial crisis and the prospect for rising debt levels, do the United Kingdom and the United States deserve to keep their AAA credit rating? Well, brilliant questions. Uh, brilliant questions. Uh, you've got three minutes before I have okay. to say something else. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, yes, I do think they deserve to keep their AAA rating. The, the likelihood of a default uh, is so small, and particularly in the United States, because all we do is print money to pay it back. Uh, so uh, it, it, to me, the notion of default is so absurd is that it's another reflection of the absurdity, the irrationality of the financial markets. Uh, the implication of that is that Europe should show some solidarity to the countries that are now being attacked uh, by uh, the financial markets. Uh, the irony of this attack should not go unnoticed. Um, the fact that Europe uh, and America were brought into the current mess because of the failures of the financial system their deficits grew in the attempt to save the banks and the economy as a result of the financial system failure. And now the financial systems are lecturing the governments about the size of the deficits that their behavior created. Uh, to me, I find this uh, so unconscionable. Uh, the fact uh, is that the financial markets are again exhibiting the same kind of irrationality that they've ex and short-sightedness that they've ex continually exhibited. What matters is not one side of a balance sheet, it's both sides. Uh, deficits are liability, but on the other side are assets. It depends on how you spend the money. And if you spend the money well on education, uh, on, on technology, infrastructure, uh, the returns only have to be five to six percent for the long-run national debt actually to be lowered. And the banks should lower, should understand this, but the fact that they don't is another manifestation of the fact that they, their understanding of economics is, uh, to say the least, impaired. Um, the, uh, uh, the notion of contagion uh, is itself uh, an interesting uh, concept. Um, and it also illustrates uh, a, a, a weakness in the econo uh, standard economic models. The economic models used at the IMF and, most, and taught in most courses assume, make a set of assumptions in which they talk about all the benefits of global financial market integration. And yet, when it comes to a crisis, they all talk about the dangers of financial market integration. They all talk about contagion. Now, you, you either believe that there is no such thing as contagion in the standard model. Um, what is needed uh, is integration of models that talk about the risks of interdependency as well as the benefits. Anybody studying electrical engineering knows about this. Uh, when you form electrical networks, you know that there are advantages in a more efficient use of generating capacity, but a failure in one part of the system can lead to a failure in other parts, but only because of interconnectedness. In the case of Greece, a problem in Greece should not be causing a problem in Spain. It's not like there's that much interconnectedness. It has to do with some kinds of, you know, speculative attacks going on against one country. It looks like that's going to survive, so let's attack another country. Uh, uh, let's see if we can cause a little bit more problems somewhere else in the world. Um, and I, I've described uh, in one of my other books uh, how how you know, like the Hong Kong double play uh, where you can design to make sure that you make money if they don't respond and you make money if they do respond. So you get them in a picture so that you're, uh, uh, you have a high probability of making money and the only way to stop with that is a kind of response from Europe to say we are we are going to back, we believe in, in solidarity among Europe. It's absurd the notion that any of our countries would default and that we will um, stand uh, behind them. Uh, let me uh, spend uh, just a question on, on the issue of the politics. How do you handle the politics when the banks ha have bought the government? In the United States, we only have five lobbyists for every congressman. Um, <laughs> 
um, the, uh, and they are a major uh, contributor. Uh, on the other hand, uh, what is so interesting is uh, voters uh, have expressed strong views about uh, what has been going on, and uh, Obama seems to be uh, getting to hear uh, the voice of the voters. So in my mind, uh, the, the answer is that uh, money counts, but so does uh, citizen participation, so does civil society. So that the only way in which uh, there is a hope of uh, rectifying uh, what is going on is is active civic involvement. I mean, I, you know, it may sound a little bit uh, utopian, but but I think that's the the only uh, the only hope. Um, there's one other remark I want to make um, on uh, global cooperation. Uh, one of the issues that, uh, in the last round of questions, the discussion of uh, was the movement out of the gold standard uh, and the role that it uh, played. Um, we went from there into the sterling and to the dollar standard. Uh, that system, uh, the dollar reserve system, is falling apart and has played a role in contributing to global financial instability. Uh, one of the things that the UN Commission that I chaired, one of the things I talk about in my book, uh, is that there is a need for a new global reserve system. Keynes talked about it. Uh, it was an important idea. Uh, it was an idea that perhaps uh, was too early, 75 years ago, but now may be the time in which that kind of uh, uh, global reform uh, can be accomplished. And so the final point, uh, the chief of staff of uh, Obama said we should never let a crisis go to waste. Um, so far, we have been. Uh, and uh, some of these issues of rethinking uh, uh, how we measure GDP, uh, I, I don't have time to follow up on the question on the Sarkozy report. Uh, some of the issues, the reform, the regulation, some of the issues on the global reserve system. I think there are, the, there are a whole set of issues, rethinking um, uh, economic theory are all some of the opportunities that uh, this major crisis uh, still affords us, that we still have time to deal with these problems. Three, three things. One is to remind you that free fall is available for sale in the dress circle bar area. Secondly, could you remain seated whilst Joe leaves so that he can get there before some of you do? And finally, it remains for me, of course, to thank Joe for his books, his teaching, his inspiration, and uh, we are deeply indebted to you. Thank you. Thank you.